Um, so, just to start, I've put in a small section on understanding mezzanine debt, and I guess the best place to start is to actually describe what it is. So, in terms of the most simplistic way to describe it, I think that first line is um, perfect in the sense that it's, it's a loan with equity upside. Um, you'll, may, you'll remember from the title I've said a sandwich, or made reference to a sandwich, and the reason for that is it sits between equity and debt. So it's a hybrid instrument with lots of flexibility. Given the position or its position in the capital structure, it tends to target equity-like returns with a debt-like risk profile. The equity-like returns are effectively achieved through structural sub subordination. Um, it can be implemented in a number of ways depending on the considerations of the investor. So I've given two high-level examples there. That would be a pref share or warrant structure. And the debt-like risk is achieved from traditional debt metrics and debt protections where we look at um, covenants, step-in rights, and security. Because of the subordination, these, these are not as strong as being in the senior space, but they do exist in their own rights within your agreement. So the next step is to sort of understand why would someone use financing like this. And I think, again, that first line, which I sourced from Prudential Capital Group, is a perfect description. So it's solution-oriented capital for a very specific purpose. So I've put in, by no means, a limited list I'm a, or exhaustive list of the types of transactions you can get. But I thought the best way to actually explain it would be with a more realistic example or more relatable example. So if you consider yourself a savvy investor, you've invested into a private equity firm, you're holding the equity, and you find this new opportunity that arises around you. So your current investments in this existing company is generating you 10 rand per year, and you need 30 that you can deploy into this new company, so you have a liquidity problem. So what you can do is lev introduce leverage into your existing company, in which case the company will take out a loan in the form of a mezzanine asset or mezzanine debts issuance. It will provide you the 30 rand upfront, and your historical equity repayments will then fall in to settle the debt and extinguish it in time. And I think the key point there is the debt does, the intention when you raise the debt is to extinguish it. So it's, it's raised for a purpose. When that need is no longer required, it's usually extinguished. Um, each of those examples are varying definitions of a very similar thing, in which case you are actually introducing debt into your profile so that you can achieve a different goal. What I've done here is I've just shown a very high-level simplistic capital structure that you could expect in some of these private companies. So it's ranging from top to bottom. You've got equity, mezzanine, and senior debt. Um, just to reiterate, this is very simplistic. So you can obviously add in additional layers in there. Specifically, between senior debt and mezzanine, you could find subordinated or junior debt. That doesn't quite qualify, but for simplicity, we've left it like that. Well, I've left it like that. Then I must just say something on the return. So that expected return, although it's often quoted like that, in my mind I try to think of it as a targeted internal rate of return. And I think history shows us that, that you can't really consider the targets, the same thing as the expectation, particularly in this asset class, because it's pretty binary, your outcome. Um, over and above that, the equity piece there with an expected return of 25% is obviously at face value quite high, especially if you consider listed equity where we're targeting CPI plus six, seven percent aggressively. And the reason it is 25 is the context is these types of companies are not your big listed entities. These are usually private companies um, with very small sizes. And so when I refer to equity there, I'm actually talking about private equity. So it's unlisted equity compared to unlisted debt tranches, hence the, the tiering 
of the returns. Um, the next slide is more of a completion slide, just to take you through on a relative basis how the three tranches rank up relative to each other. So we've covered return, but it's in there for completeness. Exposure to upside, so like I said, um, you get some equity participation in a mezzanine financing transaction, but you're obviously not a private equity holder, so you don't get the full exposure. Uh, senior debt, obviously, 0%. You're just looking for your capital to be repaid. Uh, the security, I've put their comprehensive, um, always first ranking for senior debt and then always second ranking for mezzanine debt. That's just a consequence of my original collapse of all the other, all the other um, debt classes into that mezzanine piece. Obviously, you could rank lower, but the point is you do have a, a claim onto the assets of the company in the event of um, default or wind-up, which you don't experience from an equity position. Um, covenants, comprehensive but less comprehensive than senior debts. The alignment of interest one is quite an interesting one. So we say yes there, not specifically because you align to a particular outcome, but you are, you are, because you get to participate in the upside of the company, you do get alignment with shareholders, not just as, an, as a lender who's predominantly interested in receiving their capital and interest back. Valuation uncertainty, so you'll hear the term self-liquidating investments. Although you, the way they achieve the equity upside is it's usually through that pref share warrant structure which they take you out of at the end. Like I said at the start, it's solution-oriented capital, so they don't want you in there for the long term. They're looking for funding for a purpose. And board involvement, again, quite an important one. Although you are not a voting member of the board, you do have observation and they often expect you to input into their decision-making uh, processes as they, as they move on. Um, so we've talked about the return, so maybe we can just pause to talk about where it comes from. So as I mentioned, it's debt-like returns, um, equity-like returns with a debt-like risk profile. So in general, this is split into two components, the first component being a contractual interest rate. It's usually linked to some form of interest rate that's observable in the market, so they have used three-month JIBAR as an example. And that is then further split into cash pay and payments in kind, or pick interest. So cash pay, obviously you're obligated to receive it and the company must settle you. Payments in kind is an interesting one and it ties back to board involvement. So it's a component of the interest that they, they will pay you if they've got sufficient cash flow to do so. Now the nice thing about having access to the board and being aligned to equity interest as well in the, is that in the event that they do want to um, that they do have excess cash flow that they want to deploy to grow the business, you are in a position where you can assess the potential benefit to yourself and give inputs on whether it's better to settle their interest or to pursue, their, uh, pursue whatever opportunity they see before them. And then just for completeness, the final piece is the performance-based equity upside. Again, various me mechanisms can be used to do it, but it ultimately translates to a synthetic exposure. So you don't end up assuming nothing goes wrong. You don't end up with an equity stake in the company at, the, at maturity. Um, here I've just put together, it's quite a busy slide and I apologize for that, but it's just to give you a general indication of the cash flow profile you would experience in a transaction like this. So the first red bar effectively is your initial investment. Um, the blue bars represent your um, cash pay interest coming in at regular intervals. And then at maturity you see the blue bar and the green bar. The green bar representing your payments in kind interest or your pick interest rolled up to maturity. Red bar return of initial investments and then your equity kicker paying out at maturity, so self-liquidating. So what the main, well, the main point that I wanted to make with this slide is if you look at that bottom 
right table and break down the actual sources of return, you see that 62% of it is linked to a contractual obligation through the debt agreement and the remainder comes through the equity. So it is, it's a hybrid instrument and um, the flexibility of the instrument is you can actually design that split to suit your risk and return profile. Just to, just to um, move on to more of a global context with mezzanine debt. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of skepticism when you, when you look at private market investments. They, they have their limitations. On the left-hand chart, um, this is a survey carried out by Prequin Investments. It's an international survey, and um, I think the results came out in June 2017. And what they did is they surveyed, surveyed a range of investors to understand where they see the best risk-return profile coming from. So what you see there is mezzanine debt is, is considered to give you, or well, 48% of investors consider it to be the best. Now, history has taught us that investor perception in reality can often be different, and I think we've all learned that at some point. What you do see on the right-hand chart, which is quite interesting, is how close they actually get to their benchmark. So what percentage of actual AUM actually hits, or assets that are managed actually hits their benchmark. And what's interesting about that is 70% of them are within 5% of their target. So if you take a midpoint from those original numbers I showed you, and you say everyone's targeting 20, hypothetically, 70% of the time they are between 15 and 25. And if you add on the upside, you end up with 84% of the time they're doing at 15 or better. So there's obviously limitations with um, taking survey data, and it's the traditional limitations. You don't know who submitted, you don't know what the requirements for submission were, and you don't know if there's any survivorship bias in the data, but it's at least worth looking at because it does present quite a strong investment case as an initial layer of investigation. Um, just to to conclude on, on the introduction to mezzanine debt, we've, or I've just listed some of the pros and cons that are worth considering. So one of the main advantages of it is it's a natural diversifier um, and the flexibility of terms and conditions can play quite usefully for investors as well as fundraisers. Um, the equity-like returns with a debt-like risk profile obviously at face value seems quite attractive, but that's um, balanced by flexibility. So it is, comes down to how you structure the investment to meet your requirements. And then I've put that last point in as alignments of interests between debt shareholders and mezzanine holders, mezzanine debt holders. So the disadvantages of it is complexity, which is a consequence of flexibility. As, and um, the next two is resourcing in order to contribute meaningfully as an investor. So if you remember a few slides back where I spoke about board involvement, that's not a very useful thing to have if you don't have the capacity to contribute meaningfully into the board. And I think expertise is also quite a tricky one because, I mean, these transactions can get quite complicated and in general you'd like the expertise to be able to understand them and repercussions of any recommendations to the board. And since we are in the private market space, there's obviously a lack of liquidity, so this is not something you can self-liquidate early. Or if you do, you probably will take a haircut. So, I mean, you're effectively looking for a buyer in the secondary market for whatever you've got. as often not easy to, to populate in that sense. And then the last one, naturally in the space, the investment management costs, whether you do it in-house by building out your own team or appoint an external manager is, is high. It is an expensive strategy to follow. So now that we've um, covered it as, or covered the broad characteristics and how it behaves, the next section of the presentation is effectively to try to assess its attractiveness as an investment destination for insurance companies. 
So what we've done is we've developed quite a simple framework, which I'll take you through, and then we've compared it to other asset classes, which you'll most likely find in the private market space. And through our adjustment process, we'll try to see, or try to assess true economic value added into, into the company. So the first thing is, um, just to set the scene effectively, is what we're trying to do is assess expected return, economic risk, which I'll come back to now, and the cost of capital. So what that's saying is you need to adjust for the fact that you're using your capital base to follow this strategy and there's a cost to that. And I think the blue line summarizes it quite well. In order to follow this framework, we have to accept that capital is a scarce resource and we must ensure we deploy it as effectively as we, as we can or as possible. The obvious consequence of this is the framework in theory should be applied to all activities. So if you are going to deploy capital, you assess them on a relative basis. So whether that is launching a new product line, paying shareholders back through a dividend structure, or using this, this money to follow an investment strategy, it's almost like tiering it and seeing where can you get the best value add or the best brand value for investment. Um, I said I touched back on an economic risk. So you'll see they have proxied it through the SAM model. And more specifically, I've used the market risk SER module to estimate the amount of capital, and I've used that as economic risk. And the extension of that is then I can price for the risk because we know the cost of capital in the industry. So more traditionally, when you were following this framework, economic risk would probably be proxied with the standard volatility or variance measure. Unfortunately, in this asset class and asset classes with similar characteristics, there just isn't much volatility. You've got more of a jump to default risk. So there's no... Um, it's very difficult to, to get a sense of an unbiased volatility estimation. What's nice about the SAM framework is that it actually is calibrated as a VAR model. So we've used that as the proxy for economic risk inherent in each of the strategies we'll look at. So what do we do for the framework? So as I've mentioned, we use the market risk SER module to determine the capital to be held. And then we make the following assumptions. And these are key to get to our conclusion. And I mean, if you fiddle with these, obviously you can draw different conclusions, but it was for completeness. So capital held against the investment strategy we've assumed is held at the risk-free rates. This is to prevent additional knock-on effects of the gearing of capital. And we've assumed the risk-free rate is proxied by a three-month treasury bill. So the reason we've chosen a three-month treasury bill, not a five-year government bond, which you'd expect for a five-year investment horizon, is that introduces duration. And under the market risk SCR module, that picks up interest rate SCR. And we've said, in, rather than going to do that and stripping it back out, let's start with it as close to a durationless, risk-free asset as we can. Um, the cost of capital across the industry, so we've used 14.5%. That was just through surveying one or two people who work as CFOs in various companies. The range I, was, I got back as feedback was 14 to 15. Um, I was comfortable to use 14.5 because as you'll see as I go through, it's not really about the absolute value of that number. It's more about assessing relative performance be between asset classes. And the consequence or the implication of these two assumptions is that when you follow some uh, 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 strategy such as this, there will be a drag on your total investment return because you are borrowing capital effectively from your shareholders at 14.5 and you're only deploying it at, at 7.2 is roughly the risk-free rate or at the risk-free rate. And in order to account for that, we say we adjust the gross return of the portfolio to generate the adjusted return. And that's the formula we've, we've proposed. So this is not the most complex way of doing it. There are obviously a lot of additions you can add to it, but it's um, purely set up to illustrate the point. And um, it obviously reads quite nicely as a simple way to explain. 
So that last component, or last term, SCR capital as a percentage of assets multiplied by the difference between the cost of capital and the risk-free rate is something we call SCR drag. Now, just before we run off and apply the model, there was one key assumption we spoke about at the start, which is that we're going to proxy economic risk with market SCR. So I think that, that assumption is quite a key one, and the starting point was to make sure this assumption actually follows intuition. So what we've done here is built, it's not quite an efficient frontier, but it's an approximation of an efficient frontier where you're looking at return on the x-axis, oh, sorry, the vertical axis, and market risk SER as a percentage, and I've used the asset portfolio as the percentage reference point. And what's interesting is as you, as you cycle up on risk through the portfolios, you start to see SER, not only SER going up, so perceived risk does seem to be increasing, so it's, it's playing out through the modeling, and the return over three months Java is also inherently increasing. So intuitively, it makes sense. And I apologize um, for those acronyms. So IG represents an investment-grade credit portfolio. Um, high yield represents a high yield investment portfolio, HY. MES talking to a mezzanine financing transactional fund. And then private equity as the final. We've put in private equity as the absolute extreme in this context for the risk framework. Um, now we'll apply the framework. So to start, uh, so don't worry too much about the numbers. Let me just rather run through the actual what each of the rows represent. So what you've got as a starting point is your SCR market risk. So that's the output directly of the model, and we saw that previously. It's intuitively it makes sense. Return over three-month Jiba and estimated total return. The difference there is 6.9%. I just used Jiba on the day that I was running the model. The estimated risk-free rate, as I mentioned, we used um, a three-month treasury bill at that point in time to estimate that. The estimated cost of capital, again, as you can see, it's a flat assumption across all the investments, so we're mainly looking at a relative value assessment as opposed to an outright. Um, it's, more import it's less important to have the outright measure exactly right. It's to show a relative value assessment. And the SCR capital drag, the component of the equation that I showed earlier, or the right-hand component, effectively we've stripped that out just so we can show how it changes, and then the adjusted return. And that adjusted return then represents your gross return less the cost of capital, or less the amount and cost of capital that you had to hold against the investment strategy. So following this, we can now make some initial observations. So the first one is the one we saw from the chart. Uh, the two-dimensional graph that we drew earlier, and that is as you increase up the risk spectrum, as you would expect, the SCR requirement goes up. Inherently, intuitively makes sense. You've got more risk, so you would expect to have a higher capital base to support it. The piece that we couldn't see, oh, sorry, and then obviously the return over the three-month bar follows the same pattern as we discussed previously. What we can't see on the two-dimensional chart, which, we could, uh, which we've expressed in this table, is the adjusted return. So now, here again, we see a general steady increase of this measure, showing that as you take more economic risk, you are rewarded for it to some, or to some extent. So, so far as everything's making sense, and we're quite comfortable with that, but if we delve into a little bit more detail, we start to find some interesting observations. So if we start moving from high yield more into the private market space, into a little bit more of the risky stuff, we see capital's going up, but return is going up meaningfully as well. So we're looking at an increase of 7.3 versus 4.3. So it's, it's, it is rewarding you. 
as you move completely out of the debt space into now this hybrid space, you start to see the relationship still holding. You're starting to see a rise of capital, six and a half, or six, 615, apologies, but with the an after cost of capital return increased by four, four, 415, so again, it's still making sense. But if we draw our attention to the end of the table, is where we start to see the relationship still holding, but in a much weaker way. So what you're seeing is a massive jump in your capital requirements, but your after cost of capital return is now starting to taper off quite a lot. So, I mean, I've showed a lot of numbers through this, this table, but um, to try to depict it more graphically, what we've done is we've said, here's that cumulative return, and that is effectively your adjusted return for the various five portfolios that I've put, to, uh, it's five, six portfolios that I've put on there. And then you start to see your cumulative or total market risk SCR to be held against each of the portfolios. The orange line that we've put in there then represents, and I've expressed it on the right-hand axis, um, the ratio of the two lines. And the idea behind that is, is it's not quite a sharp ratio, but it's the intention to try to see how much additional return are you getting for you per unit of capital that you're consuming. And what's quite interesting, and I'm, at this point I must pause actually and highlight that this is quite a simplistic model. So the point of the model is not to assess what the right asset allocation is or if you, um, uh, or to try to say that's the point. The point is that there is a breakdown of a point where taking additional risk stop, stops making economical sense or stops adding sufficient value to justify it. That point is effectively where those three lines intersect. And if you look across the right-hand axis, you'll see that's roughly at 100%. At that point, you've deployed your capital in such a way that every unit deployed gives you a rand back in investment return. Any further down, and you start getting to a point where a rand only gives you 50 cents back. And it's not to say that that's a bad thing. It's just a decision that should be made consciously as opposed to subconsciously um, without doing the work. So conveniently for this model, it did pop up between high yield and mes. But like I said, if you introduce additional complexity to the model to more realistically capture reality, you might find that intersection point shifting either left or right, depending on what you change. Um, and then the last key conclusion that I actually made was, although it does reward you, Sam and the after cost of cap capital calculations do reward you for increasing risk, there is a diminishing marginal benefit of doing so. So just to conclude, what have we done? So we've unpacked a potential new investment opportunity and we've highlighted some of its characteristics, its risk, its return profile, We've explained how it operates and what you could expect from a successful transaction. We've then developed quite a simple framework to compare various investments in the space, and of the space being private markets, specifically looking at the unlisted market. We note two things. The first thing is that both expected return capital and adjusted returns seems to increase in perceived investment risk. Oh, sorry. Seems to reflect increases in perceived investment risk as expected. However, the relationship is not as simple as we would initially would like to, like to assume. And as a final conclusion, we've said this asset class potentially has the ability to add value in an insurer's investment portfolio, but it probably requires additional work focused on the specific considerations of the actual insurance company in question before a firm conclusion can be drawn. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, Chris. Uh, the first question, uh, there are two questions, they're somehow related. The first one is, you mentioned earlier on when you talked about the um, return expectations, or you said more that return target potentially, um, you mentioned that the outcome can be quite binary potentially. So I guess, um, you know, to hold this asset class, you probably want to be well diversified because it could be the binary for a specific counter. Um, how deep is the market of this type of asset? Uh, you know, would it be fairly easy to come up with a diversified portfolio? So that's the one question. Then the second question um, is that you consider uh, also expected loss, credit losses. Uh, I suppose if you go from the, from the viewpoint that the SAM SCR is more your unexpected losses, that um, you also think about allowing for expected losses, which I guess again might be more valuable on a diversified portfolio basis than looking at individual counters perhaps. Okay, so the first one was on the size of the market. So it's actually a very, because of the nature of the market, it's very difficult to assess the true size. So I've actually asked a few people to get some feedback. So it's a market, I mean, to generate returns like that, it's a market where there's significantly a higher proportion of people looking for the funding than people prepared to provide the funding. So last year, the estimate that I got was there was roughly 10 billion of funds looking for, or 10 billion of companies looking to raise the funding, and anywhere between 20 to 30 percent of that actually gets raised. So you're looking at two to three billion um, across the markets, so across the industry. Um, so to answer your question of can you hide or can you use diversification to manage the risk, the answer is probably if you strictly only invest in one of these asset classes, probably not. But if you use it as a piece of a block that you use somewhere else, so if you've got it blended with other portfolios, then I think the idea of it diversifying the total investment strategy starts to make sense. Um, I hope that answers that fine for question one. Then question two, in terms of expected losses, so we can definitely include it. Um, so the, the assumption I worked with is that SCR is set up, and, and you're probably right because um, SCR is more a tail risk event, but because it captures the ratings and the LGDs, which Sam is quite strict on in this asset class, I think it assumes 100% LGD, that I thought adding the, um, the expected loss to the, uh, to the assessment might be too penal. Um, but it's definitely something that could be looked at to see if it changes, changes anything materially. Any other questions? Okay, uh, I mean, if there aren't any other questions, I've got one for you, Chris. Um, have you perhaps seen this framework being applied uh, globally in other countries? Um, I mean, particularly with the advent of Solvency II in the UK, perhaps in that market? Your comments? Yeah, so, um, so I've, I've not physically seen it, but I. Um, what I can say is um, some of my previous colleagues who came from the UK to SA um, saw it as an opportunity because in the UK this is quite a big thing. Solvency 2 has been around for a lot longer than SAM. I think we've got three months under our belts where they've had quite a few years. And there it is more, it is more relevant. But there are some stru structural differences between the SA economy and the UK economy that must also be considered because I think there your largest instant investors are actually insurance companies. We hear there's a bit, it's a bit closer between pension funds and insurance companies. In SA, so if I can just bring it back to back to SA, historically this type of assessment wasn't really looked at or something you looked at as an after afterthought. I think with the introduction of SAM, what I've seen is a lot of people have started giving it more it started to get more credibility as people start to assess their existing portfolios and start to find unnecessary concentrations, unnecessary utilized capital. 
where I haven't seen it applied, and that was the purpose of this presentation, was in the more private market space. So I've seen it applied quite rigorously in the cash space and the more traditional investment strategies. I haven't seen it being applied in the private market space just yet. between SAM and Regulation 28? In terms of the instrument. Oh, so, uh, caught me off guard. Um, so, regu Regulation 28 is unfortunately more rules-based, and I can't off the top of my head remember how much they allow you to do in unlisted debt. But I think it's 5 to 10%, not more. Um, so, they don't do a, they don't do a, I mean, a pension fund doesn't have a capital framework, because it's A equals L, and if it's not, you've got a bit of a problem. Um, so they follow that rules-based approach where you just can't utilize more than of a certain capacity. So I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact number, but I, I think it's five to ten, but not more. Any more questions? Okay, I think we'll, we'll end there then. Thank you, Chris, for your time and for your insights into this new sort of uh, asset class. Thank you.